0: Welcome to this episode of Ready, Set, Grit, Your Life on Purpose with Ellen Barton, where you'll hear thought-provoking discussion, inspirational stories, and get action tips for creating the life of your dreams.
1: Hello and welcome to Ready, Set, Grit, Your Life on Purpose, a weekly podcast in which we talk about the secrets behind living the life you've always dreamed of. I'm Ellen Barton, and today my guest is Sharon Orlop. Sharon is president of Orlop Enterprises, which is an organization focused on education about inclusion of all people. Sharon recently retired as the global chief diversity officer and senior vice president of corporate HR for all of Walmart, where she was responsible for advancing a diverse and inclusive workforce of 2.2 million associates worldwide. Since retiring, Sharon has gone on to write her first book, which is called Standing Up After Saigon. It's a book that has received some acclaim and endorsements from many well-known people, including Bill Gates. Sharon, that's amazing. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having
0: me, Ellen. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, no, it's great to have you here. So um, I'm really excited to talk about your book. It's, it's fascinating. But before we get into that, I wanted to um, just backstep a little bit and start by um, talking about some of the work you were doing in the corporate world, because it's really interesting. You were the chief diversity um, officer at Walmart, and that was, you know, really high level. How did you become interested in being an advocate for diversity?
0: So Ellen, I often tell people that my passion for diversity and inclusion began long before I was born. Um, my parents got married at the tender age of 19, much to the disappointment of both sets of grandparents. Um, and my parents came from different backgrounds, uh, different socioeconomic backgrounds and different religious backgrounds. So my relatives were not happy that my parents got married and I don't know about your family, but at my family, people tell things the way they are. So whenever we got together, As a family, there were a lot of negative comments and stereotypes. And so my parents made a very purposeful decision to stop those negative stereotypes and negative comments that were occurring. So they moved thousands of miles away from our relatives. I actually grew up believing that it was bad to live near relatives. (laughs) um, And so because of that, my parents got very involved in the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement. So much so that when I was 12, they made a very purposeful parenting decision. They moved our family to a neighborhood that was predominantly African American and Hispanic. And uh, we weren't that welcome in the neighborhood. We had our yard set on fire several times. Um, Our home was vandalized. My parents had a small landscaping business that was vandalized. But at 12 years old, I wasn't afraid. What I was trying to do was to fit in. I wanted to make friends and I wanted to know who am I gonna sit next to on the school bus every day when I go to school. And so we lived there for 30 years. And what that neighborhood taught me is that we're all more similar than we are different. And it gave me this internal radar device that I feel goes off when I feel that people aren't being included. Um, And so that's really where my passion and interest about making sure that the workplace is inclusive, and that communities are inclusive. Uh, that's where it springs from.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. When, when you were growing up there, did you have a sense that you were receiving these important life lessons or were you just mad at your parents for not letting you have the Brady Bunch, you know, childhood, um, <laughs> white suburbia? <you> know? <laughs> yeah. No, you
0: know, I don't think I was ever mad at my parents. I enjoyed um, where we lived and I enjoyed the experience. And later in life, I wrote them a letter that thanked them for immersing us in situations where we looked different than those around us. So I, I, I was never mad at them when it
1: was going on. I was just trying to figure out how, how do I fit in? How do I make friends? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Now, it's, it's interesting how sometimes we go through tough situations and later find ways to use those lessons and, mm-hmm. and build upon them. So it sounds like you certainly experienced that. Mm-hmm. So very, no, Very, very cool. So um, I didn't want to, you know, stay too long in your background, because now, obviously, you've moved on to a new part of your life. And the book is really, really interesting. So I want to hear about it. It's um, called Standing Up After Saigon. It's fresh off the press right now, hot off the press. So um, how did this book come about? What inspired you to write it in the first place?
0: Yeah. So what's been interesting when I I spent about 12 years at Walmart and what I did for about 10 years was I created a mentoring circle every year. And it was typically about 20 to 25 employees. And I always made sure they were from different backgrounds, whether it was ethnicity, country that they lived or worked in, um, religion, sexual orientation, etc. So I'd always gather this group of 20 to 25 people and we'd create experiential events throughout the year. And then I always ask them to pay it forward with other people um, that they met at Walmart. And so I'd retired in 2015. And about a year after I'd retired, one of my mentees, his name is Wa Wang. He's from China. He had reached out to me, sent me a text. And he said, the next time you're in Arkansas, you should meet with Tuong Tron. She's got an incredible story. That's about all he said in his text. So I met with her right near Thanksgiving of 2016. And we had coffee for about an hour and a half. And she shared her story with me. And at the end of it, I said, you've got to write a book about your life. And she said, I've been looking for the right person to write that book for me. I said, pick me, pick me, I'll do it. And then we started talking every week by FaceTime. And we put together a book proposal and an outline. And I would write the content and share it with her and her father. And they'd make edits and revisions. And then I spent several weeks in Arkansas where every single day I went and interviewed either Tu Hong or Father Chen so that we could put the book together, but it's been an incredible experience. Well,
1: that's amazing. Had had you ever written a book before?
0: I had not. When I was at Walmart, I used to write a Monday morning message. So it's a weekly message every Monday for about 10 years about inclusion and about leadership. And then when I retired, I became the editor of our community magazine in Arizona. It's a monthly magazine that goes to about 1,600 homes. And then I'd written several diversity And inclusion articles that were um, used by diversity and um, and inclusion publications um, either online or hard print. So so I've always enjoyed writing a lot and I enjoy storytelling because I think stories really touch the heart and if you touch the heart you can change behaviors.
1: Yeah absolutely. So did you ever doubt you could do it or were you just like I can do this I've got this or were you ever like I don't know what I'm doing I've never written a book. (laughs) (laughs)
0: There were a lot of different moments. Um, First, I built my network around authors. So I went to a lot of writers' conferences and networked with a lot of authors, Um, read a lot of books, and talked to a lot of people about putting together a project plan. And I just addressed it like a lot of work projects that I would have as far as what's too on responsibility, what's mine, how do we set deadlines and goals and stay on track. Um, But I was very fortunate because another mentee of mine named Kelvin Goss, he had written a book and had used Brown Books Publishing Group for his book. And so he introduced me to the CEO of Brown Books Publishing. Her name's Millie Brown, and she's been in business for about 30 years. And Millie offered to mentor me. She said, I know this is your first book. If you need any advice or help, let me know. And so I feel like I've had people along my path that have helped, but there have definitely been moments of doubt um, or moments of a lot of solitude, especially during the research and then during the writing and editing. Where at times, I questioned, how did I get myself into this, and can I, can I make it to the very end?
1: Yeah, well, I, I asked you the question, not to be antagonistic or anything, but really because I think a lot of people that listen to this show are people looking for um, to make a change in their life, to make a pivot, to try something new to try something that maybe feels really authentic to them or in line with their purpose and and that can be scary you know you're putting yourself out there you you know in your case you had a successful career in the corporate world and then to stake your claim as an author i mean there i i'm i'm just guessing but it, you know it could be a little bit scary i guess is the best word i can think of right now Um, to, or or vulnerable, you know, you could just feel like maybe a little bit vulnerable, like, what if this doesn't work, you know? I I
0: agree. And I think those transitions or those pivot points are tough. And I think what gave me the inspiration and made me, uh, help me through it was in Tuhan's story. She had to personally reinvent herself through developing polio or through the end of the Vietnam War and through the immigration to the U.S. So when I kept thinking about making a career pivot or career transition, I kept thinking what I'm going through is a piece of cake compared to what Mm. she went through. So I think her whole story about continually having to reinvent herself um, it paled in comparison to the things I was going through as I'm thinking, am I a good enough writer? Can I really write a book? Will people read it? You know, so I had all of that, but I thought, wow, she's done she's faced challenges that were like ten times greater than what I'm facing, and she made it through it. So her story actually gave me the fuel or the motivation to make it through it.
1: Yeah, no, that's great. And you mentioned the mentors, which is also um, something certainly advisable to seek out if you're looking to make some kind of a transition, a coach, a mentor, someone to be your cheerleader. And um, and what about Tuong's story? Can you give us the high the highlights of what she had to go through in her life?
0: I will. I'll give you the highlights. And before I do, I'll just say that when she told me her story, it grabbed me like nothing I'd ever heard before, and it just wouldn't let me go. I knew that this was the story that needed to be told. So she was born a happy, healthy toddler. She was born in Saigon in 1970. Her father worked for the South Vietnamese Air Force, and he'd worked alongside the U.S. The U.S. pulled out of Vietnam in 1973. About that time in 1973, when the U.S. was pulling out, Tu Hong developed polio. So she used to be able to walk and run and then all of a sudden her legs didn't work anymore and she had to crawl on the ground. Well, her dad um, researched a lot of different polio treatments and she tried many different things and she was approved to go to West Germany to receive this new treatment um, that a woman named Sister Kenny had put together. And she was scheduled to go in June 1975 and Saigon fell on April 30th, 1975. And at that point in time, the family was separated. Her father narrowly escaped to the U.S., but the family was told that he'd been killed. And so they actually held his funeral service without a body um, and thought that he'd passed away. So he's in the United States trying to locate his family. For five years, he's sending them letters. But the communists had changed the names of streets and the numeric address system. So his letters never made it to his family. But he found a friend who had family in Saigon, and they located Hong and her family. And then it took another 10 years for them to immigrate to the U.S. So the family was apart for 15 years. And then when they reunited, the three children, Hong and her siblings, were adults. Um, but her dad had researched polio treatments and potential surgery before she immigrated to the U.S. And so she actually had surgery within her first 60 to 90 days of coming to the United States. And after her surgery, she was able to stand up with the aid of leg braces and crutches, and she stood upright for the first time after 17 years of crawling on the ground.
1: Wow. And I, know,
0: I I just think mm-hmm. I, there, I can't imagine that many obstacles that people have gone through.
1: Yeah, yeah. And like you said, when, when we compare, I guess, our first world problems, it's like,
0: <laughs> <laughs> crazy. Uh-huh. And just with coming to the United States, you know, so not only did she have surgery, she had to learn to walk again. She had speech therapy. She learned English. She got her college degree. She learned to drive. And she's worked for several Fortune 500 companies. She's been in the technology departments at IBM, Sprint, and Walmart. And then she currently works for the State Department of Texas. So she, she's just a continual learner, huge positive attitude. And no matter what comes at her, she finds a way to successfully move through it.
1: Well, that's amazing. Did you find that um, her perseverance, determination, and grit, did that actually um, inspire you to you know, shore up your own grit and, and all of that in that area? It did, because I thought, I want to make this book a
0: success for her, because it's her story and her journey, and so I put together a marketing plan that was 50 pages. I mean, I did a lot of research. I looked at a lot of memoirs from the um, Southeast Asia region. Just want to make sure that her story gets told because it's so compelling. But it did. It shored up my desire to fight hard um, because when I think about what she's been through, it's been very inspiring.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What a story. Were were there parts of the story that were hard for you to... um to write? Were there difficult um, parts of her history that you were asking her and her father to recount? There were, and some of it was just uh, my own
0: lack of knowledge and also insensitivity about when I scheduled my time to spend in Arkansas with Tu Hong and her father Chin. I went um, the last week in April and the first week in May. And April 30th is the anniversary date of the fall of Saigon. And for people in South Vietnam, they call that date Black April. And for Tuang and her family, that's the day the family became separated for 15 years. And so it's a difficult day for them. And I didn't realize that when I scheduled the trip. And on that day in particular, we did not cover the book. Whereas we'd spent every single day interviewing, I was recording them. I was writing chapters, having them edit the chapters. And so on that date, I said, let's let's not talk about it. Because as I was interviewing, particularly her dad, it brought up a lot of nightmares for him. And even midway through the conversation and my trip there, I said, should we continue or not? Because it was very difficult for him. Um, and so sometimes we just had to take breaks. The other thing that I did not know was that Tu Hong's 19-year-old nephew had passed away on April 24, 2015. So I was also there during the anniversary of that, and that I was not knowledgeable about. It was um, a horrible, horrible car accident that he was in the day before his prom, about a month before his high school graduation. And her nephew had planned to join the military. So Tu Hong's father, which was her nephew's grandfather, and the great grandfather both served in the military in South Vietnam. And so here was this young man um, who was joining the military in the US, um, wanting to follow in his family's footsteps. Um, I had a bright future ahead of him, and it was just very tragic. So my timing was tough. And when I read the details online as I researched the car accident, that was extremely troubling. I had to go outside for a long walk because uh, my children are the same age as her nephew when he passed away. And that was just very difficult to read and to, to write.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I can imagine. Were, were, were there parts of the story that they didn't want you to share that were just too painful for them? Um, the, there were some difficult stories that her father shared from the
0: war. Right. That he was involved in. But because the story is mostly Tu Hong's story and her journey, we ended up not putting those details in as much because most of his story is centered a little bit on his history growing up in South Vietnam and getting married and having children. But mostly his story is about how he escaped to the U.S., and how he made a life for himself in the US and how he continually looked for his family and then also what that process was like when they all got back together. So there were some details and some difficult things that were shared with me but actually didn't add to the story and so so I didn't include them. But um the Tuong's parents marriage ended up not making it and I think people hope for a fairy tale ending, a family has been apart for 15 years and they've suffered horrible poverty, malnutrition and oppressive government policies. And then they're finally reunited. And it was a tough, tough family get back together. Um, her father was the only one of five adults um, in the house that spoke English, had a driver's license. He also had a job he'd been promoted at. He was working a lot of hours. And um, so the, the dynamics weren't what people would imagine they would be. And so her parents, did end up um, separating, but they they are still very cordial, and everybody's always still together at family events. But it, but it was a challenging situation being reunited after that length of
1: time separated. Oh, I can imagine. And what was the whole process like for you? So you mentioned you were writing the weekly um, newsletters or motivational uh, um, pieces for your um, for the employees. So. Were you needing to adapt your writing style or um, how did you grow into being able to write a book? Did you have a preconceived idea of how you're going to structure it and the voice that you wanted to write in or did that evolve as you went through the process?
0: So a lot of it evolved. I had read um, a story and a book that had different chapters depending on who was using their voice and who was talking about it. So that gave me the idea about writing this book where the first series of chapters is Tu Hong's voice. Then there's several chapters that are dad's voice and then back to Tu Hong um, because there's, their stories are interwoven and I wanted both perspectives. Um, and then the chapter outlines changed um as we put them together. And then I had a fantastic editor, her name's Judy Hebb, um, that Brown Books Publishing Group put me in contact with, and she was fantastic. So I actually ended up chopping out about a hundred pages that were had too much historical information, too much political information. I'd done a lot of research on the time period. I wanted to be able to add those details, but it detracted from the story. And then there were times um, as I went through several editions of the story as I was going through the editing process um, repetitively that want to make sure the voice sounded like Tuhan right that the voice was true and it felt like her Um, and so so it was an evolution it was paying attention to a lot of other books I read a ton of memoirs to understand voice and I think it's a craft that I'm still very much in the learning phase and want to continue to grow and improve.
1: Yeah. And now that you can call yourself an author, how has this whole process changed you or how is it different that you know, you've written a book and what, what, like what's on the horizon for you?
0: I know. So kind of the what's next, what, what I really am interested in doing is telling people's story. I love storytelling and I'd like to spend some time particularly around immigrant women. And um, and I'm not looking for celebrities or senior leaders. I really want everyday people and huge challenges they've gone through and what that experience has been, because there's been so much rhetoric about immigrants and refugees. And yet uh, Forbes had an article where it said 40% of the Fortune 500 companies were founded and created by either immigrants or children of immigrants. So I just think timing right now around telling powerful stories about immigrants is important for our national narrative. But what's interesting, Tuong and I were visiting our publisher and we were doing some video shoots. And one person suggested we write a children's book about her story. And I had not thought of that genre at all. And so I've been doing some research along those lines. And then, um, as you know, I also have a friend, Letty Velez, who I would love to tell her story. So that's probably going to be the next book, which I'm looking forward to. So I want to be able to tell stories about strong, independent women who've encountered obstacles, but have found their way through it. Because I think that helps others figure out how to deal with situations that they're dealing with. So that's the space that I think I'll be in. I really like true stories, because I think sometimes true life is far more difficult and challenging than stuff that gets made up. So that's where I see myself.
1: Yeah, that's so exciting. I was getting goosebumps when you were talking. And it is, like you said, it's so important at the moment, just historically and politically, but at this historic time. I remember going to an entrepreneurial conference and hearing that one of the most um, important predictors of whether a region is going to be successful with nurturing um, startups and, and new companies and growing economically is the presence of immigrants. If there isn't a strong immigrant, immigrant presence, the region has a much lower chance of success. And I don't remember the numbers, but it was significant. It was very interesting.
0: That's really interesting. One of the gentlemen that I know, his name's Glenn Yopes. He wrote a book called The Innovation Mentality. And he talks about the power of immigrants. And part of it is they see opportunities where other people don't, right? And they see the opportunity that's available in America. And I think they anticipate around corners um, and they're willing to try a lot of things. And they create and so that's interesting about uh, regions and entrepreneurs. I'll definitely look at more information. Yeah, on that look
1: that up because that was, I wish I could remember, but it was, it was surprised me and it, it mm-hmm. made sense, but it was very, um, very interesting. Eye-opening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the idea of telling the women's stories because they're often the unheard voices and, um, that's it's really cool i I'm, my head is just like spinning with the platform like what's what's going to be her platform this is really exciting uh-huh thank you so, i appreciate that yeah that's really cool So is this book that you wrote um um Tu Hong's story is this um like screenplay material it sounds pretty cinematic to me it's <laughs> the very first
0: coffee meeting that Tu Hong and i had face to face Um, We both said this should be made into a movie. And then the very first conversation I had with Millie Brown, the CEO of Brown Book Publishing Group, she said the same thing. And uh, so I think the story is so compelling. I think it would make an excellent film or documentary. So I'm always hopeful for that. And what I am going to do is send a copy of the book to some of the people that have already done films on Vietnam. And with my fingers crossed, hoping that maybe there's an interest there.
1: Yeah, that would be really cool. And I'm in the video business, so I'm always thinking visually. And I just see like so many references to the visual uh, here that is so powerful. Could, I could easily see it as a movie as well. So I hope that you're able to make that happen.
0: Oh, thanks. Well, one of the visuals that I just want to tell you about, because it's throughout the entire story, is... A suitcase, right? And to me, suitcases hold our dreams for the future. And so the book opens up with Tuhang's suitcase that's packed when she's five years old, hoping to travel to West Germany for polio treatment. Um, and then the war occurs. When they are told about her father's death, which is an error that they've been telling, it's because his suitcase fell out of a helicopter that crashed. And so the suitcase is delivered to their home when they receive the news that their father passed away. And then when they immigrate to the U.S., each family member can only bring one suitcase. So when you think about packing up your life and moving to another country and you can only put what will fit in one suitcase, it's amazing. So there's this theme or analogy about suitcases and what we pack in our suitcases and
1: how our dreams are part of what we pack. Oh, my goodness. You just, you just gave me goosebumps again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I think about that. Like the, um, I mean, it's it's a horrible thing to bring up, but like the um, the Auschwitz images, mm-hmm. you know, with all mm-hmm. the suitcases, that's what's so heartbreaking to me is yeah. the, these are all the most special things. Yeah, you know, it's um, but it's very true. I I think that that could be a whole that could be a whole film, blog mm-hmm. series, or something. Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really really interesting. So um, Sharon, I have a question for you. It's a little off topic, um, but you have had an um, amazing life, and now you're going into this whole new chapter, so to speak, with your writing and telling mm-hmm. these stories. It's really interesting. And I always am curious to get people's thoughts on um, their definition of success and happiness, and are they one and the same? What, what would you say? And I know I'm just like throwing this at you. I didn't give this to you ahead of time. Yeah.
0: So two thoughts come to mind and these are values that I hold or mantras that I've lived by. I always think happiness is far more important than money. So I think you have to do what you love. And I think if you do what you love, the money will follow. But I think happiness has to be what life is all about. You can't live somebody else's life and you have to be happy doing what you're doing. It has to give you satisfaction. And then rather than focus on success, I want to always focus on significance. Um, how can I make a difference? What type of impact can I have? And so so my definition of success would really be what kind of significance or impact am I making for others or for the world? And um, And if I can be a servant leader or help others achieve their dreams or their aspirations, that's What I want to do. Um, I'm going to share one quick story. When I was in college, I'd always wanted to be an attorney. And at the end of my college career, changed my mind, ended up going into custody mediation. And I had taken an interest test that said I should be in retail or public speaking. So I'd been out of college for six months, not enjoying the job that I'd chosen, but I really didn't know what to do to change that. And out of the blue, a gentleman from the career placement center at the university I went to called me and said, I remember that your interest test or your interest assessments said you should be in retail or public speaking. He said, there's a free seminar this Saturday with a whole bunch of retailers and I want you to go to it. And so I went to it and it, it literally spoke to my soul and I changed jobs and I ended up, I was in retail for 30 to 35 years because of that one phone call that that gentleman cared enough to call me six months after college and say, hey, there's this free seminar you should go to. So ever since then, I've wanted to be that lifeline for other people. And I've wanted to be the person that can connect others to either job experiences or to leaders or to people or to organizations that will make a difference in their life. Um, And so that's why I've always had these mentoring circles. I want to be a connector. I want to be a bridge builder. And I do that because somebody did it for me right when I was out of college and it changed my whole life and career trajectory. And so I want to be able to do that for others. And when Tuang and I met, her dream is to create a nonprofit foundation where she can help disabled children in Vietnam. And I'm hopeful that through this book and whether it becomes a movie or not, but through this book that she's able to realize that dream, that, that helps get her on
1: the path towards her aspirations. Wow, that's fascinating, and what a beautiful legacy. So thank you for for sharing that. But it's it's really interesting. You know, you you said that this um, counselor just happened to remember you and happened to reach out to you, and, and you were open to hearing it and respond, you know, take action on that. And by the same token, you happened to get this text. That connected you to Tu Hong, and you know it's it's so interesting. Life is is not this um, linear mm-hmm. experience. It's such a web of interconnections and um, you know you know uh, synchronicities, I guess. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. to me, it's about navigating through and being open to what's put in your path. And that's somehow I I feel like there's something in there to finding that purpose and finding that authenticity of your own unique individual, only you can live it life. Yep. And I think you mentioned it several times. I think you have to
0: be open to what's happening in your life or aware of experiences or connections or relationships or, and not be on a linear path yourself. You know, not saying I need to do X by this age or, you know, I need to be this position or you have to think about life is full of surprises and life is messy and some of it's serendipitous, but how do you take advantage or, or recognize that there might be a reason why people have been put in your path, right? Or why situations have happened. And I think if you take the time to reflect on it and to think about what is the lesson I'm supposed to learn from this, I think that opens people up to possibilities.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think, I don't know, just speaking for myself, as I get older and slightly wiser, I guess, (laughs) I find myself going much quicker to that question of what is the lesson when things are tough. I less and less these days ever really get upset about it. I'm just always like, huh, that's interesting. Okay, what am I supposed to be learning? And it makes it so much easier and more fun because you see, you start to see life as this big adventure and um, it's it, when you remove the judgment from what's happening, it makes it, um, to me, a lot more um, interesting, I guess.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I think that's a great way to look at it.
1: <laughs> no, it's really, it's, it, it's funny. And I also like about your story. I like everything about your story, but I also really like how you um, had a very successful corporate career, left that career, and um, rather than just, Sitting back and not really doing anything, which you know i, 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 I you, you've gone on to the new new challenges and continual growth and and life is kind of like that too, like we we never really arrive, you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: It's like you want to be a continual learner and uh, continue to help others and give back and grow as a person, and I think that's what drives many of us,
1: yeah, yeah, well, you certainly are an inspiration to me. I, I really appreciate you sharing this whole um, part of your journey. It's, it's uh, fascinating. And before we wrap up, is there anything else you would like to just add or leave our listeners with?
0: You know, something that was said to me early in life and it's changed how I view things is that it's important to understand the five people that you spend the most amount of time with. And when you think about who those five people are, are they dream enablers or dream stealers? Right. Dream enablers are people that believe in you, that support you. They give you constructive criticism, right? They give you feedback to make you better, but they really want to see you grow and learn and they believe in you. And then dream stealers tell you you're too tall, you're too short, you don't have the right GPA, didn't go to the right school, whatever reasons they have for telling you that you can't achieve your dreams. And what I've learned is that you need to run away fast from those dream stealers. And sometimes Those are family members. Sometimes they're people you're in relationships with, but you have to surround yourself with people that believe in you and you have to believe in you and your dreams. You always have to change your dreams or adjust them or alter them. But if people that you surround yourself with are really limiting you or ruining your self-confidence or dragging you down or telling you all the reasons why you can't achieve what you want to achieve, you need to surround yourself with different people. And, and that's the lesson I would leave with. Cause I think that makes all the difference in the world. You need people around you that believe in you.
1: Mm, beautiful. Absolutely true. And I would just add, you need to be your own best friend in that and not steal your own dreams.
0: That is a great point.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Cause our we 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 tend to do that sometimes some of us yep so um yes it's definitely something to keep in mind so but thank you Sharon this was fantastic and I can see why you were a mentor to so many because you you do have um so much to share so I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us well thank you so
0: much Ellen for having me on I really appreciate it and you have a great day
1: yeah, thank you. You too. You too. Have a have a great day and much um, success with the book and eventual film. <laughs> <laughs> thank you.
0: I like that vote of confidence.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you again. Thank you all for listening to today's show. My guest was Sharon Orloff, and you can find this complete interview, links to Sharon's website and her book trailer, and links to purchase the book on our website, ReadySetGrit Thanks again for joining us and check in again next Friday when we release another episode with tips on turning your daydream into a fabulous success.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Ready, Set, Grit.
1: Your life on purpose with Ellen Barton. Look us up online at readysetgrit.com where you'll find daily inspiration, links to our social media, and where you can access our ebooks and online classes. Ready, Set, Grit. Inspired actions, real results.